Father in heaven, you know too well my efforts in the previous service to unravel, oh God, what is profound beyond human plumbing to its depths. Oh Lord, I pray your spirit would come and make sense, Father, of my best efforts to open our hearts and our minds, relinquishing our wills unto you. And help us to see, Lord, though perhaps through familiar words, what it is that you did when you came here to be our Savior and Lord. I pray, O God, open ears and open hearts and eyes to see you in a more magnificent way. In your name I pray, amen. I'm going to begin with an excerpt this morning from Eric Metaxas' brand new book, so new that I'm, I don't even know if it's really in general circulation yet. I bought it on a, on a pre-release type of uh, situation. And Eric Metaxas was the one who uh, released this past spring, I think it was, uh, the book Bonhoeffer. Maybe it was before that. Just called Bonhoeffer, about the uh, Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was exceedingly politically involved himself with the German church and trying to keep the German church on the path of biblical truth and ended up himself being intimately involved in some of the uh, many attempts to remove Adolf Hitler from the face of this earth. It's a dynamic book that speaks profoundly to our day in this country. I highly, highly recommend it. His newest work is just entitled Miracles, and it's about exactly what it says. Let me read from page 8. What if all the myths and fairy tales were pointing to something that was not only true, but also truer than anything we knew in this world, to a realm that was truer and more real? What if this world of materiality and corporeality were only the shadowlands, and what if we were meant for another place that was more real and more true? What if our hearts longing for that other place was what led mankind over the years to make a place in our world for myths and religions and fairy tales? And what if the God who had created us and loved us had found a way to break through into our world and to offer us his hand to say, if you take my hand, I can take you back where you once lived and to where you really belong because your heart knows that you do. Would you take his hand and let him take you there? Would you believe the miracle of his breaking through into this world? Metaxas is referring there, of course, to the incarnation, the taking on of human flesh by God himself. The incarnation is that mind-boggling act in history when the creator of the universe took on the form of one of his own created beings. And he did so not out of caprice or of boredom, and he did so certainly not for personal benefit or advantage, but for the express purpose of breaking mankind 
out of a word he borrowed from C.S. Lewis, what C.S. Lewis calls the Shadowlands. Through the revealing light of God as himself being light, shining on every place in every corner where there is the subtlest suggestion of less than full visibility and crystalline clarity. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, alluding to this, saying what can be known about God is evident to them, referring to all of humanity. What can be known about God is evident to them, for He has revealed it to everyone. This morning I want to approach a very complicated, complex passage. I hope I don't make it worse. So let me approach this another way. How does God, the one in philosophical circles often called the uncaused cause, or in theological circles called the holy other, adequately communicate his personal investment in the lives of his created ones who have more in common with a maggot living in a trash can than they do the Father in heaven. One way is for God to take on human form. Let me read the book that we've been studying for several weeks now and we'll continue to, Lord willing, Philippians. We are on chapter 2, reading old material from the last couple of weeks. If therefore there is any, any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul, in this letter to the Philippian believers, In chapter 1, he commends them. He applauds them. He affirms and reaffirms, in fact, their special place that they hold in his heart. But then he pushes them to be even more like Jesus, assuming, as he just wrote, that there is encouragement and comfort and friendship and compassion like that which Jesus has lavished upon them. Oh, it's a nice sentiment to be sure. It's the kind of slogan one might find in a religious greeting card. But Paul refuses to just let it sit there like some worthless idol on a shelf to become no better than basically a four-leaf clover that's pressed between the pages of a book. So Paul presses them to a higher level of understanding, to a higher level of faith, where what they say they believe is confirmed by the way they live. And the way they live is spotlighted and highlighted and magnified in their day-to-day relationships in the real world, in daily living, and with one another. If you are serious in what you say you believe, there will be evidence. And Paul writes that the evidence of this in your life must be that you are unified with your other brothers and sisters in Christ. 
imitating the same kind of love that Jesus shows to you. Bound together in God's purposes. Doing nothing with you as the starting point in mind and behaving like everyone else is more important than you. Looking out for everyone else's interests, which includes your spouse, rather than your own interests. What Paul just did in verses 2 through 4 is he listed ten absolutes that accompany real faith. Because these are absolutes, they are non-negotiables. For each and every one who wears the name of Christ, yet ironically, these ten absolutes are utterly unreasonable because they are impossible to live out. These are non-negotiables to everyone who wears the name of Jesus. And yet, on one side of my mouth, I tell you that they are impossible to live out. Now, the other side of my mouth, well, at least they are impossible with our everyday, accommodated, self-controlled, natural attitudes. Which is why we all need routine and frequent attitude adjustments. And as I mentioned last week and even the week before, it requires a special tool, a supernatural tool. If you're a follower of Christ, the Lord has given absolutely each and every one of us the very tool that can change our natural birth attitude to a supernatural rebirth attitude that is the same as the one that Jesus has. So here it is. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. The Spirit writes, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Four things. It says, have Jesus' own attitude, that is, to to have Jesus' very own frame of mind. And it doesn't say that we're to have an attitude or a frame of mind like Jesus's, but the very attitude and frame of mind that is Jesus, that is His. And if you say, that doesn't even make, make ontological, logical sense. Well, it does if you think about Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It is not an attitude like his. It is his attitude. Second, who although he is... And I'm going to translate this very literally from the Koine Greek using the participular form of the verb because that's the way it appears in the original. It's awkward, but it's, it, it, it's, I think it, it, in spite of its complexity, gives, gives clarity if that makes any sense. Who, although he is the always having been the being in the very form of God one. Let me read that again. See, a participle is a verbal adjective. 
who although he is the always having been the being in the very form of God, one point three, did not regard sameness, did not regard identity or title with God as something to cling to at all costs, no matter what. Fourth, but stripped himself or emptied himself of his stature and his status as God Almighty, putting it aside so that he could take on a new morphe. It means a new form. It's the word from which we get our word morphology and metamorphosis. You think about a transformer. You have a transformer that might look like a, a, a truck or a building, and it transforms into some kind of super being or monster or whatever it is. The metamorphosis is a change of form. Putting aside the very form of God and taking a new form instead of clinging to the form or the stature of God, he took upon himself the form and the stature, the text says, of a slave being made in the appearance and likeness of men. Now, let's consider this further and hopefully without such complexity, but no promises. Any repetition for the next few minutes here is intentional. Philippians 2, 5 through 7, first of all, have this attitude in yourselves. This is not a suggestion. This is an imperative. The verbs are in imperatival form in the Greek. It means it is a command, it's an order from the king of kings to his subjects, us. Secondly, the word although seems like one of those throwaway words, filler words. It's not very important, but it looms quite large here. It means that the reality about Jesus is that he truly was God. There was no suggestion that he was anything less than God Almighty, meaning the attitude expressed by Jesus was not incumbent on him to have such an attitude. In other words, he didn't have to empty himself of his God-likeness. He didn't have to do this because, after all, he was his God. And although he was the morphe, theu, the form of God, leaves no doubt about his God, full godness, if you will. Which is why when Mormons come knocking at your door or Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking at your door, Their teachings about this salient point about who Jesus was and is are not simply wrong. They are blasphemous to such a degree that continued belief that Jesus is less than God Almighty removes them from the promise of heaven. 
no matter how much PR, public relations, that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the name of the official name of the Mormons, no matter how much PR they do to insist that they are a Christian denomination, they are not. And neither was Jesus some kind of junior deity as the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. He was slash is fully God. And the word although in this passage serves to accentuate that fact. Because he was God, he was under no obligation to do what is described in this passage. He chose to do it. Anyone of lesser stature than fully God would be obligated to obey the superior one, commanding him to go to earth and do what he did. But this is not the case with Jesus. There is no one superior to him. He is fully God, hence the brand Morphe Theu. I can't stress this important enough. Three, even though Jesus was never not fully God, meaning he didn't shed his deity when he took on human form. He did not consider his stature or his status and his rights in light of his deity something to be grasped, something to be clung to, or something to be demanded. The word here from the Greek, it's only one word, and it's extremely difficult to fully understand, much less articulate. The word arpagmas occurs only here, this one time in the entire Bible. Those of you who are really sharp might say, you mean the entire New Testament, because the New Testament's in Greek, the Old Testament's in Hebrew. No, the entire Bible. Because the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the word arpagmas here does not occur there either. So that means it makes it very difficult, again, to do proper kind of word study and etymological backgrounds of a word to get its real meaning when it occurs only one time, as it does here. It occurs in antiquity, in Greek uh, uh, historical antiquity, in extra-biblical literature, but only here once. So I'm going to do the best job that I can with it. Hopefully the Spirit will intercede and uh, intervene and make it make sense. The word here, talking about his, his, his things that he's put aside, made the choice to put aside, the arpagmas means sort of having a treasure, but choosing not to avail or demand from that treasure the benefit of having it. Let me put that a little more crudely. We have a billionaire, made his fortunes in the tech industry in Silicon Valley. He is verifiably a billionaire, and he is verifiably a billionaire with liquid assets, meaning all his money isn't just tied up in papers and properties and all of that. He has a billion bucks at his resources. It is his by right, etc. But he chooses to live on $10,000 a year and never touch his treasure. For Jesus, it means being fully God, but not utilizing what comes with the title. 
forth. Instead of utilizing what was absolutely his every right to do so, he instead emptied himself or lowered himself or humbled himself. Of what? Of everything that was his by right. That's right. It's your warning. Instead of coming to earth as the one who made the earth, the morphe theu, the form of God, instead he came, the text says, he came as a slave or morphe dulo, in the form of a slave. The same word, morphe theu, morphe dulo. But in my exegesis of this deep text, I notice that while he came as morphe theu and morphe dulu, he didn't come as morphe anthropu. The cognate of anthropu is anthropos or man. He didn't come in the very form of man. Hang on. I know. He came in the form of God. But he shed his godly prerogatives in a sense, or no, that's not even right. He didn't choose to avail himself of them. He took on the morphedulu, the very form of a slave, but he came as homoyamati anthropu and schemati anthropu rather than morphe anthropu. Oh, I know, right? Why didn't he come? These are the questions that theologians ask. Why didn't he come as Morphe Anthropu? Again, he came in the form of God, in the form of a slave. Why doesn't it say he came in the form of man? Okay, that's true too. Possibly. A morphe, rather, as morphe theu, in the form of God, Jesus was, again, I'm being repetitive, Jesus was exactly God. He wasn't a kind of God, a type of God, a partially God, partially man. He was exactly God, the morphe theu. And as morphe dulu, Jesus was exactly a bondservant, a slave. Yet, when Jesus came to earth as pure man, fully man, he came without a sin nature. So, repeating, we have morphe theu, we have morphe dulu, and while Paul now has two perfect opportunities to use morphe anthropu, referring to incarnation, he doesn't. Why? Jesus came as a man without a sin nature, even as Adam and Eve did. When Adam and Eve came, they came without a sin nature until they rebelled against God. Nevertheless, Jesus came as purely man, fully man, meaning in the incarnation, Jesus, just like Adam and Eve, came with all of our limitations. He came with all of our prerogatives and all of our characteristics as human beings, but He had no original sin and therefore had no sin nature. 
but he still had the capacity to sin, even as Adam and Eve had a sin nature, didn't have a sin nature before they sinned, but chose to sin. Whereas Jesus, of course, did not, would not, because he was God. All right, that was the part that uh, an astute theologian, I'm sure, could probably pick that apart and split hairs. Some of it even bordering on, on uh, sounding somewhat heretical with the ontology of Jesus. That's not because of what it is. It's because of my inability to adequately articulate it clearly because it's just a difficult passage. So what is certain now, we're shifting gears, is that the net result of this was that Jesus, in verse 8, says, would be found in appearance, homoiomity, anthropu, as a man. And as such, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The depths to which Jesus went in humbling, lowering, humiliating himself are mind-boggling. Let's consider them. He lowered himself to leave the serenity of heaven. He lowered himself to empty himself of his divine powers. He lowered himself of his divine rights. He lowered himself of his divine authority. He lowered himself in taking the appearance and likeness of one of his own creations. He lowered himself in subjecting himself to the squalor and the imperfections of the sin-mangled planet that he had made in perfection. He lowered himself, subjecting himself to a corrupt system of justice. He lowered himself, subjecting himself to a vile worldview that was anti-God. He lowered himself to be executed unfairly, taking a sentence of death that was yours and mine by right. And he lowered himself not by merely allowing himself to be executed, but even by the manner of execution, since the cross was reserved for special criminals associating with being accursed. And this is why verse 8 notes that it wasn't enough that Jesus was simply murdered, but the way in which he was murdered was also a vile humiliation, even death on a cross. Now, considering all this, do you see why I said we need a special tool when we need an attitude adjustment a tool that resembles a tool called a T-bar. But it is, in fact, the cross, for it is the cross of Jesus that is, in fact, the apex. It is the apogee. It is the acme. It is the zenith of all that God in human form suffered and endured for no other reason than to provide all who would receive his gift the exchange of himself for you and me. Now, let's go back and remember the reason for which Paul writes what he just wrote. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
If there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. How is this possible? Only supernaturally. By having this attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the more faith, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness and the appearance of man. And he became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. At this moment, I'm going to ask you to ask the Lord who made you, who knows you, and loves you anyway. I'm a part of the club, I assure you. Ask the Lord at this time how he would like you. Don't let this be just a cliché how he would like you to be more like Jesus. Remember everything we just went through now. First, begin with your relationship with the Lord God Almighty. Has he been speaking to you about your putting him as just another thing on your to-do list? Or how about how you have allowed life to creep in and bump your usefulness to him? and bump your time with Him further and further down that list. Again, remember that these are not things that we do in our natural ability or even desire, but we can do them in the supernatural ability and desire He wishes to give us through an attitude adjustment that comes as we gaze upon the cross and consider how Jesus lowered Himself and emptied Himself of everything that He had, and He did it for our sakes, and He was pleased to do it. And once you get that straightened out, talk to Him about your marriage. Talk to him about your home. Talk to him about your walk of faith. Talk to him about your consistency in the gathering together of believers in corporate worship before him. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, as is the practice of some, writes the author of Hebrews. Talk to Him about your expressions of love to Him and for what Jesus has done for you and, in fact, is doing for you. Talk to Him for that relationship that is strained or broken with another follower of Jesus. Ask the Lord how you can be more like Jesus in being the bond servant of the Lord available to him for his kingdom purposes. Will you lower yourself as Jesus did 
swallow whatever pride has become a wall between you and whoever. And apologize wherever and to whomever an apology is necessary, even if it's your spouse. And the reason I've said that now several times is because we all have this way of just taking so for granted our wives or our husbands. And it's like, oh, we get something out of the Word and we read that about, boy, I've really been guilty of this with one of my friends, forgetting that you've been trampling on your own spouse routinely and repetitively and without apology, maybe even without knowing. No, they're also a brother and sister in Christ, as are your children. Many, many times over the years raising my family, I had to go to my children and ask them forgiveness and to tell them that I was out of line and I sinned against them and against heaven and ask them forgiveness. That's right. This, by the way, is not a drive-by guilting. Okay? 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that this is actually the necessary outcome of this passage that is inspired by God. Because all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I want to end going back to something I said at the beginning about how we have more in common with a maggot than we do with our Heavenly Father. That's how holy other He really is. And this is an honest-to-goodness true story. We're not making this up for the sake of an illustration or being super spiritual. There was a day that when we get our trash cans, I just throw the bags in there, and invariably a bag now and then would would just break. And and you know the scene. What happens is you go to take the trash out, and at the bottom of a trash can, there's this slurry of nastiness, right? It's just liquid from who knows what things you've thrown out over the past couple of weeks and rotted food and everything. It smells awesome and everything else. Well, one summer, nice, hot, rare, hot day in Maine, I go out to the barn to get our trash can and I pull the lid off of it and that lid, I mean, literally is covered with white crawly maggots, okay? And it's like, I mean, I got a good stomach and all. And it was kind of like, wow, that's kind of cool, but not really. And then as I look into the can, there's just maggots (laughs) everywhere in this can. Now it gets worse. So I pull the trash bags out, and they're in this slurry. And it's like a beige, brownish, green-tinged, nastiness, scummy liquid. And there's maggots that are just in there, and the water is just moving slowly because they're all moving, and they're just in there doing what maggots do. They're oblivious to how nasty and disgusting it is. And I kid you not, where my head went, I looked at them. And I thought about God and us. And I said, if I loved those magnets, magnets, maggots, <laughs> and I wanted, to, I wanted to show them that there is a world and a life 
where you don't have to live in this cesspool of nastiness and yuck. How would I do that? I can't say, hey, this way, follow me. Obviously. But if I could become a maggot and go into that trash can and walk down or crawl down into that slurry, I could tell them, follow me because you don't have to live like this. And some would believe and some wouldn't. And then I'd crawl out the can and go, by the way, you know what maggots are, right? They are the larva form of houseflies, okay? And show you that if you follow me out, man, we'll get out of here and you'll turn into a fly and you can annoy people in another way. And I just, and I tell you, my, my heart was just, it was smitten that, again, knowing that I truly do have more in common with that magnet than the Father, God Almighty, the Trinitarian God has with me, and yet that is basically what he did, only worse. Only worse. And for no other reason than because he loves you and me, he put aside his godliness and he went into that trash can to appear before mankind and to tell them and to show them the way, the one and only way, the one and only one who could take them out. That's the Jesus whom we are told to have his attitude, his mindset, his view, and his servitude and love, putting everybody else before himself. That is the one we are commanded to be like, allowing him supernaturally to do it through us because we can't just say, okay, I'm going to do that. Isn't he an amazing God? Mind-boggling God. This is the Jesus that we love. And the Jesus, hopefully, that we are increasingly learning to serve becoming more and more like him. Paul. Let me have you stand. Let's pray. Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, our pastor has shared with us your word. And Lord, how great of a word, how great of a message it is for us today. Lord, none of us have any excuse. We've heard your word and we've uh, seen the greatness of our God and his glory, Lord, and all that he was willing to do for us. Lord, I just pray that uh, you would help us all to reflect on that word and the nastiness of our attitudes, Lord. And I just help you help us, Lord, to focus on him and to become what you are to be through the power of his Holy Spirit. Jesus.